0: This is Who Makes a Podcast, conversations with your favorite podcast hosts about who they are, the shows they make, and why they make them. I'm your host, Chris Cookley, and my guest today is James Blatch. James is the co-presenter of the podcast, The Self-Publishing Show, and a historical military thriller author. He is a former BBC news presenter and reporter. James, welcome to Who Makes a Podcast. Hi, Chris. Thank you very much indeed for having me. For my listeners who may not know, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and where you're from originally, maybe what you do beyond podcasting, if anything, uh, where you live, how you got there, anything like that?
1: Sure. Yeah. I've quite a varied background. I seem to have changed. Careers fairly majorly about every 10 years of my life so but I'm I live in Huntingdon in the UK which is a uh, town sort of market town about 65 miles north of London so a bit of a commuter zone as well it's about an hour on the train into London in fact I'm going there for dinner tonight so we're we're not quite in the suburbs but um we're in the sort of the sphere of influence of London in, in southern England um in terms of me so I uh didn't get off to the best of starts, didn't do very well at school, fell into computing, which I did for eight years, and uh, whilst I quite enjoyed the coding side of things, I, I found it all very tedious otherwise, and really wanted to work in broadcasting. Uh, finally sort of woke up and started working harder in my 20s, worked myself into the BBC, which is our obviously our national broadcaster here in the UK, and... Um, moved from programs sort of producing radio programs to journalism and uh, became a television news reporter and presenter in fact I presented the news here in the UK for a bit and but mainly I was a reporter specialising on military matters, which I loved doing. So went off around the world with the armed forces. And I did that for about 15 years, 15, wow. 16, 17, something like that, with, with all the sort of freelance work I did beforehand to try and get a staff job. That probably added up to about 16, 17 years with a bit of crossover with my computing world. And then I just sort of got to the point, I had children. And, uh, you know, going off, I was, Iraq was really... Um, a pretty unpleasant place at that time and I was on the rotation to go to Baghdad I've never been to Baghdad I've been to southern Iraq and um, I don't it's it sort of was a conscious decision or not I don't know but I certainly there was a part of me thought you know you, you, you go to this building heavily defended in in actually I think it might have been Basra and you stand on the roof occasionally when there's rockets coming down, and you do a report which is fed to you from London. And I just thought, with the young children, I sort of didn't fancy it at that yeah. stage. So I looked around for something else to do, and there was an attachment offered for a year to go off and be a film classifier where you sit and watch films and give them their ratings, same as the MPAA does in the States. Called the BBFC and I applied for that. Um, I was told actually after I applied that twelve hundred people had applied for these oh my s- six jobs. And uh, but I think with my BBC background, so I stood out a little bit and got through the uh, the various rounds of watching films, being quizzed about it, writing reports, and anyway, was offered the job took that and after a year i didn't want to go back to the bbc i just really enjoyed it i knew that i'd taken a i sort of moved on a bit so i ended up doing seven years of that um of watching films and tv programs and series giving them classifications Uh, and during that time i met two colleagues who were also film examiners john dyer and mark dawson and We started sort of working together whilst we were there, particularly me and John doing video production work. And so when it came time to leave, you're only supposed to do that job for five years, actually, but they extended me for a couple. But after seven years, I left and John and I started a video production company where I used my kind of old BBC producing skills. And we worked in the corporate sector, uh, particularly pharmaceutical and then Mark Dawson, at the same time, had discovered self-publishing, and he he was always a frustrated author. Um, so he started doing really well with that, and he we kept in touch, and he, he phoned me one day and said, look, I'm thinking about doing a, a, an online course to teach other authors, which I thought sounded really cool, and it was an exciting new area. So John and I had a coffee with him, and we created the self-publishing formula on the back of an envelope in London in 2015 and started SPF and so since then that's been my main focus has been publishing and self-publishing and I've written my own novel Um, I'm just finished the first draft of my second novel I publish in a small imprint called Fuse Books I publish four other authors and that's growing and we do these online courses to help uh, authors who want to self-publish how to sell their books so yeah that's so I was a bit long winded, but that's my background.
0: Yeah, that's that's an extensive background for sure. <laughs> yeah. Have you? Did you have any any close calls while you were overseas doing the the war correspondence reporting?
1: No, I didn't. I was too junior when all the big things happened. So it's okay. like 03, the big invasion. I was too junior. So there's a first wave of people who go out and they get all the the prime embeds we used to call them. So they go with the marines or. I, you know, aviation was more my thing, so I would have been with the RAF. I, I did get sent to Kosovo, and that would have been uh, somewhere where I may have seen some action, had it not been the fact that I really was an RAF, you know, an aviation guy. So I, they sent me to the RAF airfield, and if you know anything about the way. Uh, the RAF and the USAF fight their wars they fight them usually 500 miles away from the war zone in a in a four-star hotel so we were in a place called um, Gioia del Colle in southern Italy (laughs) I was eating mozzarella and uh, tomatoes in the (laughs) evening and reporting on the Harriers going off during the day whilst I had colleagues who were in horrible convoys you know going through Albania trying to get into Kosovo and um, so so that wasn't you know i could not call that they had close calls the pilots yeah going off during the day but i didn't i spent probably a month on aircraft carriers one way or another um uh, and they launched from there but again hundreds of miles from the uh, from the war zone so yeah N- i've got no war wounds uh, and i'm quite quite
0: pleased about that yeah yeah it's kind of a cush uh, cush position to be in i guess if you're going to be reporting on the war
1: yeah and definitely if you if you're there's a brilliant book actually by um a young British journalist for The Times newspaper and it's called War Reporting for Cowards. And he did get an embed with the U.S. Marines, and honestly, it was such a culture shock for him, and he was terrified. Yeah, he was cur- curled up in the bottom of these um, transports, and the Marines were laughing the whole time. He made some good friends there, and it was a hell of an experience. But I think I would have been probably closer to that than the guy who was standing out there brazenly, you know, broadcasting as uh, as the f- shots came in, like a few of the um, slightly uh, uh, psychopathic war reporters want <laughs> to be.
0: Do you? This, this may be a strange question. Did you feel like you were missing out on anything at the time?
1: Yeah. What do you mean? Missing out on the war side of things? Yes.
0: Just, yeah. I mean, the, you hear the stories about uh, soldiers in particular who maybe like, it, especially in, in World War II, I'm thinking that's, that's like yeah. my frame of reference where they get maybe drafted or they get brought in and then they never see any action. And it's it's almost a depressing thing for them because they wanted to fight
1: yeah absolutely for sure i was desperate to be in the action i was i was bending everyone's ear about it and and working my way up and that i was getting closer to it but yeah i was i would have at, absolutely have gone to any embed whatsoever i really wanted to be on an american air, aircraft carrier in the gulf which was much more active than when we were in the mediterranean where you can also fly from there to the middle east which is a lot Easier, but uh, I, I was desperate to get closer to the action. I really wanted to fly. Actually, there's a famous American broadcaster who flew with the RAF in Lancasters um, and reported, uh, and they crossed into Germany, dropped their bombs. It was a hell of a thing, oh, wow. really, because they went down so often; they had like a fifty percent attrition rate. Um, but he very bravely went with them, and I felt that we could have got a two seat Harrier up, which I'd flown in a Harrier before in peacetime in the UK. So I had the kind of clearances. And the Harrier guys were quite interested in that, but uh, it got stamped on at quite quite a senior level in in London. And also the way the BBC works is such a hierarchy, such a large organisation that I can well imagine that had the RAF and the MOD, and Department of Defence in the UK, said yes, that they would have what we call big-footed me. Found somebody else yeah a more well-known correspondent would have come in to do it so that would have been frustrating um so you can sort of see why i got to the end of that it's it's endless politics in that world you sure. constantly have to talk yourself up you've got to be good at making and i hated all that aspect of it i like i loved the work but
0: um i, I was kind of done at that point yeah i could imagine the uh, the radio programs that you produced how long were you doing that for not that long. I
1: probably did a a um, eighteen months, two years. I produced a guy called Steve Summers, who was quite a musical guy, and um, he had an afternoon show on a on a regional radio station, and we were quite silly and wacky, and you know, it was it was a world away from the harder news that I ended up doing. Uh, I loved it. It was fun, but yeah. So so I did. But I, I suppose in terms of, of where I am now and the sort of thing that you and I do with podcasting yeah, uh, I did do quite a lot of the interviews in those days I did all the production I did the pre-interview prep which was you know, a bit more than we do with podcasting but my main interview experience came as a news reporter when I did interviews every day of my professional life um, working there from, from those simple vox pops you do out in the street where you just stop people and ask them their opinion on something through to senior pod- I mean I interviewed Tony Blair I interviewed George wow. George W, not George W, I interviewed George H. Bush. H. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, who else did I interview? Yeah, quite a few cabinet ministers you wouldn't have heard of. John Major, prime minister as well. So I interviewed people at the top and people who had just been sacked from their job and parents who'd just <laughs> been bereaved of their children, horrible circumstances. Oh, I mean, you, you name it. Anything you watch on the news in the evening that is a story, um, there's reporters there who, who carry out interviews. And that that's where I cut my teeth uh, interviewing
0: the interviews that you do now must be quite an easier ordeal I would imagine than the ones that you had to do with those parents and uh and politicians
1: yeah I mean the, the politicians ones I was always nervous about because everyone listens to those and people much more senior than me listen to them and you get you do get feedback on those and I think back slightly cringingly one of the very early ones I did I just didn't get it right I didn't I let the I let the politician not answer the question. I didn't notice he was so good. I didn't notice he wasn't answering the question, and that was pointed out to me afterwards. Well, he didn't answer your question. You
0: didn't push him on it, and um, so you learn quickly on that. But I feel like that happens constantly. Every yeah. <laughs> like every every interview I hear, almost it seems like they ask a question, particularly in sports. I feel like they they answer something, but it's never what they get asked.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's all these techniques, isn't there? Saying, "I'm glad you've asked that," and I think what you're meaning to ask is this, and right. and they they go off. But um yeah, it was a key. And I think back to that one. We'd had a it, it was General Motors actually who had a big depot north of London, a place called Luton, and they employed lots of people and they had done since for years. And they were closing the plant. It was a big shock. And the government at the day was not a very interventionist government. It was Tony Blair's government actually, but they didn't like intervening, and the unions were basically saying to them you have to intervene here you've got to get on the phone to Detroit you've got to tell them that you're going to subsidize them for four or five years just to stay here to ride this out because we're going to lose thousands of jobs and so that was the big question and this guy was running from us I mean literally ran from us uh, as a cabinet minister and he came in to do an interview about something else we tried to get him eventually pressed his office into doing this interview and I was sent to do it and that was the one it was early early one for me an early political interview and that's the one where I didn't didn't properly nail him I didn't I didn't properly spot that he wasn't answering it so I should have I, you know what I should have said is look I'm sorry are you going to intervene or not you know really short precise <laughs> yeah and um, but I was I was asking it in, in woolly ways and he was answering point in, blank in woolly ways but um yeah I mean I suppose um the interviews are very different aren't they because then then the next day you get sent to like a murder victim's family or or something like that and that's a very very different interview from this one so but the key the key thing amongst all of them and I know that you're doing it already Chris which it's a funny thing that a lot of interviewers don't do but you are doing it is you listen to the answers and so that it becomes a conversation much more than an interview but it's surprising how often I'll be on the receiving end of a podcast interview and you'll say something that you think is quite interesting and a little bit kind of oh that's interesting and then they'll ask the next question on their sheet now that's that's an early amateurish thing that I was probably doing with that cabinet minister a bit nervous about it whereas after a while you get more confident and you start you start asking, asking questions but then it's a key it's my key tip actually for interviewing is just listen to the answers and your questions will flow naturally from that. And that then becomes a little story, a little arc of story, the interview. Um, So that's what I learned, I guess, the hard way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely something that I'm trying to work on. Uh, I read a book recently, actually the very first interview that I did for this podcast uh, was Kenny McKay. He lives in the UK as well. He's from America, but he lives over there. He recommended a book called talk to me, which is about interviewing and how to how to get better answers from people. So that's been pretty beneficial as far as how I'm conducting this. I think I'm, I'm glad that it's kind of coming through. Uh, to come back to something that you said earlier, because I'm you know I didn't I didn't know this as as somebody who listens to your podcast, the self publishing show, uh, which is the podcast run by I guess your your company, self publishing formula. You said that. Uh, Mark Dawson, John Dyer, and yourself all started SPF on the back of a napkin. I didn't realize that the three of you were kind of in that together. I know Mark is kind of the the face of it, and you are pro- the voice of it, technically, I guess. Uh, I've heard John mentioned in the past, is he kind of more behind the scenes on the podcast?
1: Yeah, he is, actually. And um, so he, the three of us own the company uh, together, and... John tends to look after things like the website and the design, he's very good at design uh, and uh, the look and feel and the images. Uh, in terms of the podcast, he kind of oversees the production, so the production side of it. So I record the interviews. Obviously I, I organize recording the wrap the top and tail with with Mark. but then I just park that into a Dropbox and I, I move on at that point to record the next interview the next day. Uh, and John takes, you know, he makes sure that's edited um and then he oversees it being put up there's, there's actually quite a team involved because we do it every week and we do interviews every week that it gets uploaded all to the right places so that's yeah that's in terms of the podcast that is john's role and it's sort of like that for the rest of the company you know he he looks after the support so pick students of the courses who are having problems with it or difficulty or whose payments missed or whatever he deals with all of that side of things and mark and i are probably a little bit more front of house i guess
0: yeah and y- You do have a team, obviously. How many people work on your podcast? What do they do? At what point did you think it was necessary to build that team?
1: So it started off just me uh, and John, and um, so I would record the interviews. I'd then edit them. I'd record the raps with Mark, and we did this in quite a cumbersome way to start off with. We wanted to do it on video quite early on, so we had cameras, which really complicates it. Yeah, and we had cameras, a separate audio recording. Then I had to use my sort of editing experience to go into Final Cut Pro or Premiere Pro and, and put it all together. And. Then I think I gave it to John, who worked out they use things called Libsyn, and you, you'll know all about that. I know less about it and how it gets uploaded to all iTunes and all, all the right places, yep. and and published onto a YouTube channel. Which I think I did, and and, and John organised the artwork, and gradually we have outsourced it. So what happens now is I'll record both the raps and the interviews, put them in a Dropbox folder. We use Slack to coordinate this a bit, which is a you know chat a sort of coordination productivity tool. Sure. And John Stone, who's an editor who John Dyer and I worked with uh, when we had our video production company, who lives in the east of England, he edits it. So he will edit the interviews As soon as I've done the interview, like I did an interview yesterday uh, with Caroline and Suzanne, two romance authors, and John today probably, or tomorrow, would edit that interview and just l- drop it back into another Dropbox folder as an edited interview with no, no top and tail at that stage. That means that another person called Tom, who's another member of our team, Tom Ashford, he can look at that video and he can make some notes on what the episode's about, uh, which helps uh, do a brief for John Dyer to then order the title of the episode and the artwork that goes with it. And he also can, funnily enough, he can brief me and Mark because I can sometimes do an interview and it's three months later where we record the top and tail for it so it's good to read a, a synopsis of what the interview's about what the episode's going to be about from Tom and then we have two other people in the background Catherine Matthews who orders the transcript and makes sure the artwork's in I think she chases that up for John and, and then there's another person called Stuart. hope you're counting all these, Chris. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Called Stuart Grant. And Stuart actually does the technical uploading and the putting live of the episodes. So he uses Libsyn, I think it is. Um, and he uploads it to YouTube and he creates a sort of, um, I think it's called a Premiere option you have on YouTube. So Premiere for, for, you know, when it's first play, it
0: up in advance. So people can, kind of save, save it. Like it's, it's coming, it's coming this Friday. Make sure you make sure you tune in
1: yeah exactly which is yeah, you know, lots of these little devices are small ways of just upping your your the interest in the in the content sure uh and then there's somebody there's alexandra amore who's in canada who's a va who also does oh she does the show notes uh, which go along with the podcast so she'll listen to the episode when it's done she'll create the show notes make sure the transcript is there and yeah so that's a few of us involved in in the podcast every
0: week just a small team. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but you could you know we could do it ourselves right so but sure we are also at the moment i'm editing a new course TikTok for authors which is a really complex talk course and it's on my plate every day i'm trying to write my second book mark's a full-time author as well as doing spf and so that's the reason why we outsource all this stuff and um and as long as we're selling courses and the company's working it pays for itself so
0: sure yeah well that's i mean it's one of the things that you're supposed to do right as soon as you can is, is get stuff off your plate onto somebody else's plate if you're if your time is more valuable than what you're spending it on find somebody else who can do it for you
1: yeah absolutely
0: hey it's chris can i jump in here for a minute and ask if you have thought about making your own podcast if you have you may have realized there's a lot more that goes into it than you might have thought don't worry i have a gift for you I want you to have my Podcast Quick Start Checklist. From what microphone and recording software you should use to how you host and distribute your show, I'm here to help with all of that and more. My Podcast Quick Start Checklist will walk you through everything you need to know to start your podcast. I'll show you what's actually important. To get my Podcast Quick Start Checklist, go to com slash start and tell me where to send it. Now let's get back to the episode. What, sorry, so you said Dropbox, you said Slack. Is that all you're using to keep track of this stuff? Are there other pieces of software involved in running this team? Um,
1: we did use Trello for a bit, but none of us really liked it. A couple of people liked it. So we stopped using that for project management. Um, Slack is our main tool. Yeah, I think that's an email, obviously, Oh, yeah, I tell. You what, I use um, a calendar. I mean, there's lots of different calendars available. True. I use Acuity. I really like it, um, and that does the automation. So as soon as, so I have a landing page which John helps set up, and I give that address out to potential guests, and they click on it and it's, it's basically a form that goes straight into the calendar fills in all the information about who they are how, what I should call them where they live because we send everybody who's a guest on our podcast a mug or something like that and um, we also ask them for a bit of background and what themes they'd like to discuss in the interview and whether they're going to add anything uh, which I can talk about in a second actually it's quite an important part of it whether they're going to offer a pdf or a free book or something to go along with their talk so uh, that then create a uh, a calendar entry with all that information in it and they then get automatically a series of emails they get one immediately saying here's you know thank you very much for booking this date and this time and then i think a week before you've got a week until your interview and then an hour before you've got an hour in, before your interview uh, i could put a zoom link in there which i think you do but i decided i would always leave the zoom link until the last minute so basically i i emailed them the zoom link at five minutes to or two minutes to probably okay um on the day um so yes, so Acuity, I've really liked Acuity and it works really simply and smoothly.
0: Yeah, it sounds similar to Calendly, which is what I'm using. Maybe a little bit more uh, robust. I don't think Calendly, I can set it up to send emails. Maybe I can, I just haven't uh, haven't looked into it. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't
1: know, but Calendly is is a widely used one. So it wouldn't surprise me if you can do all that.
0: Yeah. You're asking your guests to provide their name, pronunciation, well, obviously their name, you know their name, pronunciation and you said something about whether they're going to bring something to the show. What is that?
1: Yeah. So, because, you know, why are we doing a podcast? We're doing it, f- you know, bluntly we're doing it for lead generation. I mean, sure. I love doing it. I love the value it brings to the community. And I think, I think our interviews over the last three years, three and a half years, done 300 odd episodes now, I think they are, is that five years actually? Uh, gosh, I think they're a little snapshot of the historical uh, burgeoning of, of self-publishing. So I love them for that, but we do it from a business point of view because it's lead generating and people understand that we have courses as well and they hear about them through the podcast. And so you do need to get people onto your mailing list at some point, uh, not just listening. And uh, PDFs are a really good way of doing that. So we have a really entertaining guest who says this is the the five things that romance authors always get wrong, and they have a PDF that goes along with it. So we will come up with the URL on the fly, usually during the episode. During the episode, absolutely. I'll say (laughs) because I know we're recording it a month out, right? So we've got plenty of time to set the stuff up. So I'll say yes. Um, it's uh, selfpublishingformula dot com forward slash romance mistakes, and uh, and then we make sure that something I have to do is to just drop into Slack uh, afterwards to John. In today's interview I recorded with so and so, I invented this URL. It needs to be in place by the time we release the interview.
0: Have you ever missed any of those? Uh,
1: occasionally, what happens is, and well, that's one. That's one of the good things about having a team. It's because John's edited the interview and then Catherine listens to the interview as soon as it's um, at the beginning of the week where it's going to go live. She'll listen to it as well. She'll proof it. And at that point, she will catch that. So she'll say, hang on, there's a giveaway. James mentions a giveaway in the middle of it. And so that has happened. Yes, for sure. But it doesn't take, it takes a few minutes to set that up. And yep. I do, we have Infusionsoft, which is our kind of uh, email service provider. And I said, I am the only Infusionsoft person in the company, which is slightly frustrating for me, but I do all of that side of it. So I'll set up a little sequence that delivers the PDF and adds them to our mailing list. Uh, but yeah, that's a, it's an important part of it.
0: Yeah, the your podcast is, you know, a textbook content marketing machines, it's fantastic. You educate people through the podcast, which leads to people finding you, trusting you, uh, which leads to people buying your courses. And, uh, you know, full disclosure, I am a student of SPF. I have the the SPF 101 course, which has been great. Great. Was that the intention from the beginning? Was the podcast built to generate the leads or did the courses come later?
1: No, the, the, the courses were first or the, the first Ads for Authors was first and the podcast was was added on. We always intended to do it right from the beginning, but we had too much on in the formation year of the company. Um, but we always intended to do it. And it was always intended as a, as a lead generator to to bring people on. Of course, you know, the trick is... It, it's got to be good, right? So yeah. yeah. there's no point in having rubbish information and not being very good and expecting people to, and even if they did join your list, they're going to join this thinking these guys are a bit ropey and I'm not going to give them any money for a course. So your podcast has to be good because that's the first, it's like your shop window. It's the first, first bit of credibility opportunity you've got with people to say we know what we're talking about uh, or, you know, we are a place for valuable resource that will add value to what you're doing. So you do obviously have to get all of that right. Um, uh, and, but then once people have, have decided to take that step and join your list through it they've already decided hopefully that you are the, well the real deal or whatever they want to call it.
0: I'd like to jump back to you for just a minute if you don't mind. Sure. You recently published your first novel so congratulations on that The Final Flight. How's the reception been to that?
1: It's been uh, it's been really good so I did this very publicly <laughs> this novel um, as you might know listening to the show yep. and uh, so it it was a bit of a millstone around my neck for a few years because, honestly, I'd, I'd, I'd written it for NaNoWriMo a long time ago and then not done anything with it. Oh, I, Did I start rewrite? I started writing it again. It was like 110,000 words. It was ridiculous. What's the final word count? The final word count was 124,000, okay. so it came down a lot. But it was rambling, and I didn't really know what I was doing. So I, I, I learned how to write a novel very publicly uh, through the podcast, doing interviews. I, I, I met jenny
0: nash jenny nash yeah
1: so i interviewed jenny nash as a an la-based book coach and really good and i knew during that interview that i didn't really know what a book coach was but i knew i needed one the moment i understood what that was about so i got together with jenny she sorted me out with one of her team she uh, and then i went through another process of kind of learning how to write it was another long-winded version of the book at that point and then i worked with another development editor did all of this very publicly it cost me quite a lot of money i paid for all of it myself um but then i in the end i ended up with i think with quite a tight uh, quite a tight novel and well i don't know i mean the feedback's been amazing as far as i i i'm concerned i've got knocking on on amazon.co.uk it's a bit of a british centric book so if you check it on amazon.co.uk rather than america it's like because it's, it's about the rf it doesn't do as well in america but let me just check yeah, 435 reviews and oh wow you know, the vast majority of those 65 percent, are five stars so nice i get really good feedback and i had um it's set in the 1960s royal air force cold war in the uk and i had a, a couple of messages um about two weeks ago from a wing commander who flew and did trials it's a test pilot thing so and did trials at boscombe down and he was fulsome in saying I don't know how you've done it, but you have captured the reality of what it was like in the officer's mess, where the decisions were made and the drinking culture and how we talk to each other and the atmosphere. So you've done, he said, bravo, well done. And that's for me, I was really pleased with that because yeah, I'd imagine uh, obviously meant a lot. So yeah, the reception's been good and I'm running ads to it. So it's only one book, which is, you know, gets us onto the whole marketing side of things, what our organisation is all about. And one book is very, very difficult to make. Uh, profit on, you're not going to, you know, most people are not going to retire on one book, although, of course, it does happen occasionally. But for the rest of us, it's usually a loss lead. And the idea is that ultimately you have a number of books. I mean, Mark has 30 odd. A lot of authors I speak to have at least six, seven, eight, nine, ten, something like that. A few have three or four, but you put a lot of money into book one in terms of advertising so people get to know you hopefully join your own mailing list but then you make your profit when they buy books two three four five and so on because you're not advertising you're not spending any money on them. there's no cost money comes in as all profit but i am running ads to this book uh, just to kind of build an audience at this stage and amazingly i'm i'm making small amount of money so i you know i lose money a little bit some months and i make money other months but overall i'm just up on it um not not in terms of the amount of money I sunk into editing and the audiobook production I haven't paid that off anywhere close to that I'll have to make decent profit over a year or so with with other books but but yeah so I've sort of proved the proved the Mark Dawson formula which is yeah. um you know if you get your advertising right uh, it does work so all I need now is for books two three four and five and so on for my readers to go to and that should be well hopefully in a, in a few years from now um will be some some income for me
0: How's the second book coming along?
1: Funnily enough, I, I finished the rough draft, which is a much, much better, closer draft to the end one than the first draft of my last book, I can tell you. I finished <laughs> it yesterday. Is it going to take 10
0: years for us to see this book?
1: It is not going to take 10 years. I've printed it out. It's in my hand here. It's um, It's actually only... I think it's only... 57,000 words at the moment there is a bit oh, okay. in the middle missing but it's going to be probably end up about 75,000 words so I've deliberately made it a much tighter uh, tighter book I don't want to do a huge wordy book again um and yeah so I'm about to start reading it on paper making my notes and then going back filling in that middle bit which I know needs to be done and then and doing some basically the revision stage which will bring out the story and the character development a bit more um, but my aim is to have it out in May so yeah I've got I've got my my work cut out. I've basically got the rest of this month and February to do the revision and get it to a development editor to read and hand back to me and then for final edits uh and then have it out in May. So that will be a year. May. It's yeah, a
0: that's a tight timeline.
1: It is. It is. You've worried me saying that. Is it too tight do you think? We'll see
0: ah you know i I don't i believe in you james
1: yeah (laughs) thank you chris i think you can do it but um yeah it took a long time to do the last one and uh my my aim is to have a book a year now i think i think with everything else i do that should be realistic
0: sure if you'd never started working with mark building spf do you think that you would have written this book
1: no no I don't think so. I mean, I had already written it before I met Mark. Actually, not not really before I met Mark. I, I did know Mark at the time, but it was nothing to do with him. It was no influence on it at all. I just happened to start writing this book in 2010 um, when we were working together. But I would not have fished it out of the drawer, the electronic digital Word document drawer, and turned it into a novel without him. Um, and it was so hard doing that. It was such a slog and slow, so... Frustrating and depressing it at points when I knew that it wasn't good enough or I wasn't good enough and I had to work through all of that to learn a lot about writing and how story works and structure that I just can't envisage how I would have carried on had A, I not had... Been working in this environment, and it it being sort of an important thing from the company point of view for me to do it, and B done it publicly so everyone knew I was doing it and wondered when my book was coming out. I had to have all of that piled on top of me to to birth this book, and it did feel like a laboured birth. Um, so yeah, I think the answer is probably a fairly safe no; it would not have seen the light of day.
0: Yeah, but now you have the momentum, and uh, second book is moving a lot quicker, so that's good.
1: So much easier. It was so much easier writing the second draft. I mean, people said it would be, and it really was. And I've really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued to read it now. don't know if it's any good. I go back a little bit during the drafting stage, probably too much, but I've got an idea of it. But um, yeah, I'm excited to get reading. That's my job for for today and
0: tomorrow to start that. You said the first book kind of felt like a millstone around your neck for a couple of years. Do you feel like? this second book has a different kind of pressure now that the first book is out and you have have readers potentially waiting for the next one
1: i don't you know i don't think i ever felt pressure for the book to come out i always knew it's my book if i'm going to publish it i'll publish it if i don't i don't and i enjoyed the fact that people harried me about it but i didn't really take that to heart i never felt under that sort of pressure by millstone, I mean, it was just, I wanted it to come out, but yes. there was always this mountain in front of me, and that laboured me down, and it felt like a slog. Um, but that was that was pressure I put on myself, really. So, in the same way, if I don't want to publish another book in my life, I won't, uh, and I'm quite happy to, to front that up and say to people, no, I decided not to. But I mean, I do want to, I really want to, and I really want to write a series of books. Uh, i'm an inspired by a lot of the comments i've got about my first book about which characters they think would be would be good in spin-offs so i really want to do it um but it does feel it feels absolutely a much lighter exercise than the first book the story is is better it's a more of a novelly story the first book was a bit of a kind of emotional thing loaded up with 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 emotion about the male kind of psyche and and stiff upper lip and all that stuff and the second book is much more of a thriller younger people who have not quite got to that stage in their life of stiff upper lip uh, but things things happen and they have to make big decisions so it feels a bit more like the kind of clive cussler books that i i'd like reading
0: yeah i used to read a ton of clive cussler yeah his dirk pitt character is fantastic
1: Yeah, absolutely, and um, and uh, strangely, I think I don't think he's still alive, but he's still writing, isn't he? (laughs) He's one of those authors, yeah, right, yeah. His son or or ghost or whoever is writing. So yeah,
0: Clive has passed on, but Clive books are still still being created. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, and it's very much uh, I, I think
1: it's it's very much in that that tone, and I had. I read one of his, one of the later ones. Actually, I thought, was it was it a Clive Custard or Was it his son? I can't remember. Just as I was coming to the end of Final Flight, my first book, and that book, that storyline, the way it moved, the way it started, very much in my mind So I wrote book two.
0: Cool. I am. Uh, I'm reading the first book right now. I wanted to have it done before this interview, but it, that didn't happen. Uh, but yeah, it's been good so far. I've been I've been enjoying it. Oh, great. Well, thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, it's so long. <laughs> no worries. I started a little bit late in order to get it done in time for this, so that's, that's my fault. You and Mark do a lot of stuff together. You're not just doing the SPF, the courses and, and the business and the podcast, and, and you personally, you write books. You guys also have Fuse Books, which we haven't talked about, Hello Books, which we haven't talked about. If you had to pick one label to apply to yourself, podcaster, entrepreneur, author, something else, what, what would you go with?
1: oh god that's quite difficult isn't it i mean at least at least they are loosely all affiliated in in self-publishing uh yeah i don't know i don't know and i don't think it's a great situation at the moment being spread quite as thinly as i am i'm really hoping that uh, i end up doing less certainly on the hello book side in the future um what do you you know people say what do you do i say i work in self-publishing yeah people ask me what i do And which sounds a bit odd, right? Because you work in self-publishing, but aren't you just supposed to be a self-publisher? But I said, no, I help other authors publish their books. And if they want to know more, they want to know more at that point. So that's basically what I say.
0: What do you enjoy working on the most between the writing, the books, the podcasts, the companies, the courses?
1: Uh, Writing, I enjoy the most. And that's the one I fantasize about having a waking up in the morning and having nothing to do but write my books and market them. I enjoy marketing my book and the fuse books i f- i do actually feel we said I, I mean i didn't feel pressure to write my book and all the rest of them quite good at compartmentalizing that but i actually do feel pressure with fuse books because there's four other authors and they rely on that income and mark is pretty hands-off on that so i wake up in the morning sweating those figures and it's not been it's been difficult been a slog the last six months on facebook advertising Um, so I enjoy the results of that because it's gone well and we're making a profit with every author, Uh, but if someone suddenly took that away from me, I'd feel a little bit uh, lighter in step during the day.
0: Do you have time to listen to many podcasts at all? Or are you, you make your podcast and then you're on to something else? Do you ever listen to anybody else's work?
1: Um, I used to listen to uh, quite a lot. And I've really fallen out of the habit. I've been listening to audiobooks actually, recently okay. a bit more time. So there's the podcast I do listen to, the only one I don't really miss is is more of a comedy one. It's Adam Buxton's podcast here in the UK. And Adam's, a, um, so he's a partner of, uh, a film director Joe what's Joe's surname I've forgotten but he's directed quite a few big films but I've watched them at every stage of my life as kids mucking about on on YouTube and and then getting their first TV gig and, and then Joe getting his first film and Adam appearing as a comedian and so but he does this brilliant podcast, uh, which I still religiously listen to every episode of that. I don't listen to so many in the publishing space anymore. I used to listen to Joe every week but I haven't for a while. Um,
0: yeah, I don't know why. Joe being Joanna Penn, Creative Penn Podcast? Uh, yeah, sorry, Joe Penn.
1: I should, I used to listen to the self-publishing guys as well, Johnny and David uh, and Sean, but uh, they haven't done a podcast for a bit. So, yeah, so I don't actually at the moment. should do. should get back into that because I enjoyed that.
0: Well, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and that means... Basically, that I don't listen to any audiobooks, so i'm I'm kind yeah. of on the other side of it, and sometimes I wonder if I should be listening to more audiobooks and less podcasts. I don't know if there's a right answer there
1: yeah yeah i I've enjoyed the um uh, the audiobooks. It's taken me a while to get into them, but quite a lot of my friends consume them a uh, great you know great deal, and so I started to get into it. I quite like sticking them on in the bar when I'm in the bath or you know working on something else or driving
0: yeah um so yeah. Hmm. Are there any any books you've read or any media that you've consumed that has influenced how you guys make your show?
1: I mean, I do look around at some of the production values, but I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, because we do video, certainly in my end of stuff, I and mean, Mark's sort of in between places at the moment because he's having an office built in his garden, so he's going to get a lot better, but he's been in his house recently, and we've been recording, you know, screen grabbing a Zoom link. I think our production values have always been pretty high, our audio quality has always always been pretty high so i haven't really learned from other people looking at that oh i tell you what tell the person who did the audio quality i think it's fantastic we did get influenced by him is uh the san diego sorry my mind's gone today the san diego based uh, passive income guy who you will know uh, is
0: that pat flynn
1: pat flynn so pat flynn's podcast okay, yep. The sound quality is superb. He has a brilliant microphone. So I got that microphone. I think it's the Shaw microphone. And also, it took me ages to work out he gets people to record at their end the audio which is what i'm doing for you and it makes a big difference it doesn't go through the filtering compression that happens when you send audio across the internet and you record it at your your end um so you put you put it together afterwards and it makes a big difference to the sound the audio quality so unfortunately not everyone will be able to do that in fact most of my guests aren't able to record locally they sometimes say yes and what they mean is they'll press record on on zoom zoom, but that's not what we're after here we're after kind of a quality microphone into a digital recorder he does that and whether he sends them the equipment in advance and they send it back or something, I don't know, but it, it makes a big difference. I have definitely been influenced by Pat Flynn's podcast. I love his voice as well. He's got a great broadcasting voice.
0: Yeah, he really does. He's. It's kind of funny that you brought him up. He has been mentioned on probably 50% of the podcast interviews that I've done for this show. And I think you're seventh or eighth, maybe for me. Wow. So maybe three or four of the uh, the episodes that I've done so far, Pat has come up. Um, I would love to get him on, Pat Flynn. If you're listening, please come yeah. on my podcast.
1: <laughs> We've said such nice things about you, Pat. I have met yeah. him, and he is a really nice guy. Um, so yeah, hopefully. But he's also very good at time management, isn't he? So
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you have you heard of uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast at all? Do you did you ever listen to that?
1: Yes, and I used to listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast quite a lot. I haven't listened to it for a couple of years, uh, so I'm not up to date on what he's doing now. Um, yeah. But yeah, absolutely.
0: I heard on an episode, maybe at the end of last year, I can't remember, that he he buys his guests' microphones and just ships them a microphone in advance of the interview just to make sure that they get that quality, which is you know, a, a small investment for him, I'm sure, to send them a $100 microphone, but it certainly helps. That's
1: a brilliant thing. And, you know, you look at how much his sort of empire turns over, that's, that's probably a, a good investment. I have done that. I mean, I have done it in the past. And I can't remember who it was. Now, it was a, couple, a couple we had a couple reasonably big authors on Felicia Yap. I think was one of them quite early on. And I sent her the microphone in the post exactly like that. So she's still got that microphone. But then the trouble is, they're not always competent enough to use it properly <laughs> right, and right, stuff. Right, right. So uh, it does turn. I do. That's the other thing about you know our job and, and mine in particular is is the time. I want things to be as quick and easy as possible. So I don't do a lot of reading up uh, on guests before much, much more than they've put into the acuity calendar that I mentioned earlier. And I don't particularly want the first 15, 20 minutes of, of the connection to be me talking them through setting up equipment and stuff. So, because sure. uh, I've got a whole list of things to do every day. So, but yes, um, uh, if, if they can do it, they do do it. And you know, some people absolutely, they'll be like you, they'll go, well, yeah, of course I can, or I am for you. I can record locally, no problem. Um, and then that's great. But uh, yeah, I think that that audio quality is the most important technical thing, isn't it? Because we do video, but it doesn't really matter. You could even put a still yeah. picture up if, if you lose the video feed. It's not, not the end of the world. But when people are out jogging or they're in their car and it was a bad audio connection, they're not going to give the podcast a complete listen. So it is important.
0: A little inside baseball there. That's part of the reason I chose podcasters as my Target because I know that they should have decent quality on their end already if they're making a podcast. Yeah, and
1: do you have a microphone of choice, Chris?
0: Oh goodness, um, I'm planning on getting a Rode Procaster. Currently, I am using a a very old AKG D880 dynamic mic. It looks like a Shure SM58. Right. Yeah, I think I know the one. I have it running through a uh, Cathedral Pipes Durham, which is similar to a cloud lifter for some extra clean gain. And then I have it running through a DBX channel strip so that I've got uh, a gate on it and I've got some compression where it runs into my mixer and then into my computer. So the microphone itself is is fairly cheap, but I have a, a somewhat extensive signal chain to try and clean that up on the in between the microphone and the recording device.
1: Well, I think it sounds really good. I think you've got a good voice for it as well, but that's uh, so why I was, was interested. So, yes, and I have a, a Shure SM7B, which is the sort of music yep. industry one. It's the and classic. It is the classic, and I do like it. I think, um, well, I shouldn't even, I shouldn't quote him anymore, but I think Thriller was recorded using the SM7B.
0: That's what I heard, yeah.
1: Yeah, But this actually, the microphone I'm using for you, because that the Shure is uh, an XLR mic, Yep, um, but I'm actually recording this on a Rode NT1. Okay, or NT USB.
0: That's a condenser microphone, correct?
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, so it works slightly differently. It requires a bit of power, but it's um, uh, it's a pretty good, crisp sound. I think the Rode. I mean, they've they've done a good job, haven't they? Rode in in adapting yeah. themselves quickly to this uh this new market. I guess in the past they would have sold x number of microphones to very specialist people um at least people at a minimum who are going to pubs and you know uh, bars and performing songs but probably owned recording studios and then suddenly there's a gazillion people who have a studio in their garden and are doing podcasting and so they've adapted quickly i think and and reduced the price of the microphones to make them very affordable
0: so you have the SM7B, that's your primary microphone. What else are you using with that? Because that is an XLR. So where does that plug into? What's the rest of that signal chain look like?
1: So that's a good question. I'm going to look under my desk because I forgot what it's called. I can't see it because it's in a ton of cables, but I have a little box, a little condenser box, and I, you know, I'm not as technical as you probably about this, but I what i tend to do is read up about it at the time understand what needs to happen do it and then forget what i've and done then forget it yeah so um at the time i would have been a brief expert on this but i have a little box it goes into which is basically gives it a bit of gain and filtering and then it goes through to a zoom recorder which is okay. uh, not one of those handheld ones it's like a desk mounted one an f4 it would go into a rack if i had a rack yes yeah, the f4 field multi-track um and I really like that because I, I have it in front of me now so I can see the gain I can adjust the gain during the um, the interview if I need to and it records every track separately as well so yep.
0: uh, everything's separate for the edit afterwards does that record locally? I'm not familiar with that. Does that record to an SD, or do you have that running uh, into your computer as well? No, it rec- I think you probably
1: can have it. There is there is a USB out on it, but I don't use that. So I record okay. it into. It has dual SD cards in the back, and you can you can set them up to either record duplicate, just as a backup in case an SD card goes down, or what I do is I put a mixed version on one card and separate channels on the other card. Just so I've got a you know a, a full range of options if there's any problems afterwards. So yeah and i think you know that was quite expensive the field recorder, but one of the things we did uh we went to nink a a florida based uh writers conference just before lockdown obviously i guess 2019 and we recorded an episode of the podcast live so we had a we had people roaming the room with microphones and i had a i bought a radio mic quite a nice radio mic uh and we had a, a stick mic which somebody else had for four the guests who sat up on the stage with us, and then two tie mics, all for my broadcasting. Those I probably purloined them from the BBC actually, and they were all <laughs> four of them were plugged into this field recorder, which I had in front of me. Nice, even at, uh, even as the guest, and I could adjust all the levels and I could turn them, close them off when we didn't want them, and, and rest. And it was brilliant for that, and we got a really good, um, you know, considering when I was at the BBC, you know, a, a small room was filled with equipment just to produce a small TV. Report yeah. and today you know in your back pocket with your iphone you have almost a recording studio quality setup. it's and incredible so, yeah it has been a, a massive jump and i have loved that aspect of it so yeah
0: yeah everything's definitely getting condensed everything's getting a little bit easier the technology is democratizing the process a little bit what do you get personally out of making your podcast
1: I really I mean I've always been a people person I guess you'd say you know I don't think you could do get be a good interviewer without being interested in, in in other people and so that's the best thing about it is getting to chat to other people and and I see I think I probably see the good in most people so I would say 95 percent of the interviews go really well there's only five percent of you know every now and again there's somebody who you, you sort of just take against a little bit um uh, or, or or for whatever reason but most of the time I get enormous enjoyment out of that i mean yesterday these two uh, young women who are sisters who recently were at the top of the kindle charts with the seventh in their series of romance books and they work out of kent and i've known them for about four years since one of them came up to me at a conference and introduced herself so she listened to the podcast and they are probably well they they are definitely among the best-selling indie authors on the planet as we speak um and we just spoke for an hour yesterday, uh, full of laughter and hilarity because, you know, they're quite self-conscious about the books they write. And I've read one of them, which they thought was hilarious. And but I learned a lot about how they operate, how they work between each other. And, you know, like I like them a lot. And that's a very typical interviewing experience for me. And so I get that out of it, which is, you know, in many ways, more nourishing than any kind of lead generator and, and course sale you, you're going to make from it.
0: Sure. Do you have any uh, any outlandish or funny stories that have come up while you've been making your show? Has anything just gone uh, disastrously wrong, uh, and then you've kind of just had to laugh about it at the afterwards?
1: I don't think I've had any major disasters. Cause I, mean, I guess because it's not live, right? Um, sure. You know, in the yeah. old days of live stuff, uh, things would sometimes go wrong, and they have done for me uh, with the BBC. But because this is all recorded, you can just ultimately you can just start again. I think I've only lost the audio once so only once did we we were recording uh with no backup i think just using screen flow in those days everything plugged directly into it and it just didn't save at the end of it and if you do, it's a proprietary save format before you've exported it and if you don't save it you can't access it it's gone so i've only lost an interview once which is really frustrating to get somebody back they were very good about it but yeah, I don't think I've had any disasters I can think of. Not not compared to the old live days of uh, of news broadcasting, where that was definitely a possibility every day.
0: The losing an episode is something that kind of keeps me up at night. I need to figure out some sort of backup system. I have the Zoom recording going. I have my, my DAW recording. And uh, that's great as long as my computer doesn't crash. But if my computer crashes, I'm out of luck right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't suppose the Zoom recording would survive in the cloud, would it? I don't know.
0: I don't know. No, it it saves it locally, I think, when I'm done.
1: Yeah, no, that is definitely. So the Zoom recorder, my my Zoom recorder records the audio, has it in direct inputs from the computer and from my microphone. And if the computer yeah. goes down, we have a power cut, everything recorded up to that point in audio will be there. What I will lose is the screen flow of their video link. That's the only thing I'd lose. And ultimately, probably we just put a still up of them. <laughs> So I think we will get around that.
0: I think I heard recently that self-publishing show hits something like fifty thousand downloads a week. Is that true? Like how how big is your show?
1: Um, I don't think it's fifty thousand. I know we've had. I know we we're approaching three million total downloads. I think it's twenty thousand a week. Okay. I think, I think what happens is is we end up with sort of a new episode has somewhere only between, twenty thousand. Yeah, it has somewhere around sort of thirteen thousand views or downloads by the end of the week across all the platforms thirteen, fourteen thousand, 14,000 something like that but there's another 6 or 7,000 of listens to the week before all the all any of the previous episodes so that's where that total figure comes from okay um, so each episode probably eventually gets to about 20,000 after it's sat there for a year because of course lots of people go back and listen
0: we have an extensive backlog yeah yeah how long did it take you to get that kind of traction Um, it's been slow growth we started pretty
1: well we started with a bang we 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 spoke to apple actually leveraged mark's relationship with apple and we got our call with the itunes guys and they said look this is how our um you know our algorithm works and this is what you need to do and have three episodes ready to go have a taster episode uh release at least two episodes to start off with and we got a new i think whether it was a result of that call or just because we managed to get some publicity around it we got we were in their new and noteworthy list for uh the first month or so so it got got off to a pretty good start and it's been a gradual growth since then so i was a bit surprised actually went through the figures at episode 300 and saw how many downloads we're having now i thought we were getting sort of seven to eight thousand a week yeah um but then tom said to me no no we passed ten thousand some time ago so yeah so that's good and like i say i genuinely think this that the self-publishing show is is a track record a historical track record of the development of self-publishing which uh, in a hundred years it sounds very pretentious but in a hundred years time will be a useful resource for people looking at how um you know that that particular industry developed
0: absolutely it's almost like a time capsule a little bit
1: yeah and then in a hundred years time i think then if what publishing will look like i think probably in 20 years time publishing won't look like it looks today so it'll be an interesting we are living through an interesting period
0: you're very adept at advertising books do you advertise the podcast at all or is it strictly word of mouth still uh we
1: don't advertise the podcast we don't uh, the only thing we do is we pu- we publish it on facebook during the week as an extra sort of outlet gets kind of live preview um but i do not think we do advertise it no Perhaps, perhaps we could we could pick out some choice episodes with downloads attached to them, and um, and give
0: them a push. Good idea. How would you drive growth to a new podcast if you were starting over? As podcasts are notoriously difficult to share.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I think the same principles apply to podcasting that apply to any other aspect of um, of online marketing. Uh, and that, for me, is you've got to be answering questions. It's it's the basis of SEO, I guess, of, of search engine optimization, is that people get drawn to our sort of non-fiction podcasts when they've got a problem to solve right. or a question that needs answering. So I think keeping focused on that and remembering that. So if you have an interview with a, 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 you know, a romance author, or a thriller author, in my case how you title the episode and how you brand it if you if you simply say oh great chat with a, a really good good selling thriller author okay that you know it's going to be of, of moderate interest but if you title it why thrillers why thriller x outsold thriller y now that answers a question that people have, and why is my thriller not selling as much as somebody else's? So I think answering questions and providing solutions and insight is is a key thing you need to do relentlessly with your podcast week in, week out. But yeah, in terms of in terms of sharing it, I mean, you are right. It's, it is it is something people get recommended to. I guess um, I think appearing on other people's podcasts is quite a good thing to do as much as possible. That's uh, another way of getting known, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's something that I need to uh, need to look into. That's the second time somebody's mentioned that, actually.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's a genuine growth strategy uh, to try and do that. But uh, I guess in the podcasting world, we don't want to make sure we're just appearing on each other's podcast the whole time. <laughs> we need to get some real people on at some point.
0: I have noticed sometimes when when somebody has a, a book coming out or a movie coming out. At least on the podcasts that I listen to, they'll pop up on one, and then the next week they'll be on another, and then another, and it's just like they're doing the the late night talk show thing, but on the podcast circuit.
1: Yeah, the podcast circuit. I tell you, the the platform we're really interested in at the moment is TikTok. It's you know it looks like a frivolous, shallow platform at a glance, but it's actually a very fast moving, very powerful new social media tool, and it's selling books. Like Billy O, those girls I mentioned yesterday—I shouldn't call them girls. Those young women I mentioned yesterday—they—they uh, they got to number one in the store in the UKN.com for, and and they had seven books in top one hundred the week after, and they attribute that solely to TikTok. The difference between really their last launch and this launch. So I think TikTok is something. I've started in the last two weeks. I spent two weeks trying to build up a, a, a sort of a Cold War history channel there by myself and i've already got over a thousand or 1200 followers i've had seven and a half thousand views of my my uh post yesterday and i think whatever your podcast area is you should look at tiktok you know the same rules apply create a channel stay in your lane and don't get don't make it too weak but keep relentlessly focused on your subject area use the hashtags and it's fertile ground at the moment to find readers and find listeners
0: is the strategy there the same as it is in other uh, content marketing areas where you're trying to get them off the platform onto an email list, at which point you can sell to them on the email list? Or are you trying to work directly on TikTok?
1: Yeah, I think I th- it is the same. Um, I think in the way that the uh, the... Other social media platforms are virtually all pay to play. You can reach so few people on Facebook now, unless you're actually advertising, putting money that way, because that's how the platform's been designed and gone. You can probably reach a few more people on Twitter, but it's not a very uh, worthwhile platform, in our opinion, for, um, for for selling or getting people off onto mailing lists. With TikTok, I think you can do that. Um, and we see examples of, of, of authors holding up a book and talking about it and immediately seeing a spike in sales, particularly, I mean, roughly maybe one sale every 250 views, something like that. Um, so they're getting people to buy their books. In terms of getting them to join your main list, I mean, I suppose what you'd want to do is whatever you're, you're pushing on the, your TikTok, like the book sale is, hopefully the book will lead to the main list because that's you know that's partly what we would advise people to do anyway, to have something at the back of your book yeah, um, to get people onto a main list. Um, I, I would, f- like all of these things, I would focus as much as possible on providing value and uh and see people then make it easy for them to find you and see that as a a natural progression i wouldn't you know go too overtly asking people to join your mailing list and and, um you know as as always but that's exactly the same as, as marketing on any channel is sure provide value first
0: on the self publishing show you don't have any episode sponsors but you do have a patreon at this point at your scale I would imagine that that has to be a conscious decision. So what would be the reasoning behind that? Would you ever consider bringing sponsors on?
1: We have done, we are contacted from time to time. Um, In fact, quite a big company has recently contacted us. we are kind of reluctant to do that. Um, You know, it's a lead generator for us uh, and it, it pays its way handsomely by bringing people into SPF, a percentage of whom will buy a course that's priced somewhere between Five hundred and eight hundred and fifty dollars. So, we don't have to have very high conversion rates for the podcast to be profitable uh, for us. So, from that point of view, it's not actually necessary for us to, you know, it, it's. I don't think it's a. It. It's not the end of the world, is it? Listening to a, a sponsor message, particularly if it dovetails really nicely with the theme of the podcast. Sure. But equally, if you don't have to, why would you? And I think that's where we are at the moment.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And you have, you have the courses, they sell well. They're they're not cheap courses by any means, as you said. So that works and that's good. Who is an author that you would love to get on your podcast that you haven't gotten yet?
1: Well, I'm a big fan of a guy called Stephen Koontz, <laughs> who is okay. uh, he's, he's quite uh, a bit long in the tooth now. But Stephen wrote Flight of the Intruder. And it was the book that I read as a 20-year-old, 19, 20-year-old, Maybe a bit younger than that, actually. Um that may- you say
0: Stephen Kuntz?
1: Kuntz, C-O-O-N-T-S. People confuse okay. him with Dean Kuntz, but it's... I was going to
0: say, at first I thought you were going to say Stephen King, and then you yeah. went Stephen Kuntz. And I was like, did he combine those names by mistake? Okay, I just haven't heard of him. So
1: he's not... I mean, he, I think he's well-known amongst military aviation authors. Um, okay. And Flight of the Intruder is actually quite a famous novel, it was made into a film, uh, not particularly good film. The novel is fantastic. He's a brilliant writer and I've read every book he's written. And his first book is the reason I wanted to be a writer. I mean, that's that's the book that uh, made me think I could, I could do this, I want to do this. Um, I would love to get Stephen on and the closest I've come to it um, is that... I mean, he would have nothing to say about self-publishing. I think, I doubt, you know, he's, he's a writer who's been published his whole life and why the hell would he, um, you know, even love the idea of it? Sure. But I did notice there was somebody with his surname at 20 Books and in the list I didn't meet her but I looked her up on Facebook did a moderate amount of stalking and looked her up on Facebook checked through her links and she is Stephen Kuntz's ex-wife ah. <laughs> which I was very excited about so Stephen Kuntz was a military aviator; he was a naval pilot in the Vietnam War flew A6 intruders hence he wrote the book Afterwards, So he's getting on a little bit, but um, there's a possible way in there for me. So I'd love to speak to him, but that's a personal thing yep. in terms of, um, of, I'd love to have Neil Gaiman on, you know, he's a big author. He won't have time for us, but I would love to have him on, um and uh you know we've we've occasionally talked about jk rowling jokingly just because she's the biggest author on the planet but she's also she's the biggest self-published author on the planet because she self-publishes the potter ebooks which i think is fascinating and i'd like to hear a bit about her operation behind that because that's that's not done through a publishing company that's done through her own company Pottermore. so yeah she
0: notoriously held on to those rights
1: yeah which is amazing um but um you know they're She's quite well known, and I don't know how much time she has for us. But uh, there you go. There's some we can dream,
0: can't we? Yeah, absolutely. What would you ask Stephen Kuhn? Like what, what would be if you had a, if you could ask him a question, or or Neil Gaiman, whose voice would be legendary on your podcast? Yeah. Uh,
1: well, I always like talking to authors about process. Sometimes it's about about plotting and, and, and discovery writing or pantom whatever you want to call it, that process. But I'm also really interested in how they actually write. Uh, I find that actually the most useful bit is of when, where they write, when they write, do they go back over the stuff they've just written? Do they write through a first draft without stopping? Do they then read it? You know that process is fascinating to me, and everyone does it a bit differently. But I, I find that you know it's the it's the actual creation of the book you're reading. Um, so I'm more I'm more interested in that than I am. I woke up one morning with this great idea, uh, which you know, the ideas come to us in different ways. So that's that's sure. the main thing I would ask. I think Stephen Kuntz would be interesting because he published in the eighties initially uh and how that felt then to how it feels today because publishing has changed he probably doesn't have a good view i I, i'm putting words into mouth. he might not have a good view of self-publishing i think people who've who've made a living from being traditionally published probably see it as a bit of a threat to their industry which i understand yep uh but also what he's learned about storytelling through his writing
0: uh so yeah i guess that's what i talked to him about how do you write james
1: yeah how do i write so i write i I've developed it a lot because, you know, I wrote my first book absolutely not looking back at all, never rereading a, a paragraph because I was doing nano NaNoWriMo and yeah. and you can't do that. You've got to get your 1,600 words done a day, whatever it is. And when I started reading the previous day, I realised I don't have time for this, so I you know, move forward. And then I started rewriting that book and I spent ages going back over and rewriting the scene the day before. And so I've sort of got a hybrid case now where I read back over... a a chapter or two sometimes just to get me back into the flow especially if i've missed a day or two i've I've gone off to write different parts of the book but generally i move forward with my first draft don't worry too much about grammar i have a tendency to miss out words as my grammar thing when i'm writing a first draft so don't worry too much about that uh, get to the end of it. This is what I'm doing with book two. Um, and now I've printed it out. I, equally, I could have put it on my Kindle and I, it's not great use of paper, but I, I do prefer, I think, to have a pen and paper in my hand and feel very different from sitting in front of a computer. Yeah, Because w- I'll just try and rewrite it if I'm sat in front of a computer reading it. And I'll read it through. I'll make some big notes about big things, about... You know, what has to happen to a character differently from the way I've written it, uh, all the way through to small notes about the use of language and so on. Um, and then I will go through that and revise that existing. That will be different from last time. I will revise the existing manuscript. Whereas last time I rewrote it three times completely, just started again with a blank bit of paper. Really?
0: Um, yeah. And I can't even... imagine doing that. I know, and I can't imagine doing it, <laughs> but I did it. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to do that again. I think the process that you're describing is, is similar to the uh, the way that Stephen King talks about his revising in his on-writing book.
1: Yes, yeah, in fact, which I read during the process of um, of writing The Final Flight. So yeah, um, probably not a coincidence I'm doing that way. Just for, it does feel like the right way of doing it. I think it's important now, what I mustn't do is, is get too into the weeds reading this book. I need to read it in one go, a nice flowing read, and work out what works about it. I mean, Jenny Nash talks about having a stoplight or traffic light a system of red amber and green you know red this has got to be fixed this is where this book is just a big patch that drags or whatever or or there's a problem where you've written yourself into a, a problem uh, Amber is this could be better and green this is great and I'm sort of using that approach to your revision I think it's a good thing
0: yeah I could uh, I could talk to you about actually writing in the process of that for a while because that's something that I'm interested in but just to get back to your podcast a little bit, The self-publishing show is available on YouTube as a video version. You've said that a couple times you guys wanted to do video from the very beginning. Looking at the YouTube channel, the videos, I mean, compared to the podcast downloads, they don't get a ton of views, maybe one or 2,000 views within the first couple months. How important is the video aspect to your podcast, and do you think the effort to make it a video version is worth it?
1: Um, that's a really good question I think we want to do video I want to do video because it's my background and I was a TV guy and uh, I always wanted to um, to have that that aspect of it I think it's not the best environment for a podcast because they're long you know like an hour long the podcast and sat in front of a you know I watch a lot of YouTube videos I play a bit of golf so I watch golfing YouTube videos obviously I watch the same amount of, of comedy and music that people watch and all of that is quite short form isn't it it's not that often you sit in front of a screen um, for that period of time and if you are going to just play it on your phone and put it in your back pocket well you may as well do it through iTunes right Right. so from that point of view it's not not the best way so um, the answer is it probably is more effort than we get out of it and you're right yeah we get sort of 1200 I think probably a typical kind of weekly view of, of the episodes there but we could do more with it. And I think YouTube is still a massively visited website. It's still like the second largest search engine. It's oh, a huge
0: search engine. Or maybe, yeah.
1: maybe Amazon's the second. Google, Amazon, maybe YouTube's third, something like that. People go on there and they search how to self-publish a book. And so we want to be able to catch those people. So I think it serves a purpose being there. And it's kind of... A, you know, we're recording anyway, so to have the cameras running, it's not a massive effort beyond. Now that we've got a process in place for um, uh, for the turnaround of that. So, if John, for instance, John Stone, our our editor, was only editing audio, it's not going to make a massive difference to him. He locks the two, the video and audio, together at the beginning and then does the edit. So, um, I don't think it's a massive um, a massive uh, weight uh, of work on top of um, of doing the audio. But you are right, it's. Yeah, by far our biggest number of downloads are on iTunes, and there's another one. I don't do that side of things, but there's there's another one I can't remember the name of that um, uh, records a lot of downloads. Yeah, but I'm not going to take a video away
0: it's anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, well, if you I mean if you enjoy it, absolutely put it up there. The editing process for that, I'm curious, is do, do you is there much editing that's done on your podcast and if there is, I assume that the video and the audio are getting edited at the same time. You said that they were locked together. Is the audio editing being done inside a video editing suite? Like, are you using video software to be doing the final audio edit?
1: Yes, yeah. So we edit yeah. it as one. So uh, John okay. will use Adobe Premiere Pro. He'll import the video. He'll import the two video tracks and the two audio tracks. The first thing we'll do is sync them. Um, which is a lot easier than it used to be. It actually does it automatically. You can run a program or you can just look at people's mouths and, and, and line them up. We used to do a clap. You know, I won't do it to sort of scare you with the, the ears, but a clap where you can see the hands coming <laughs> together. I know what a clap sounds you. like. Yeah, exactly. You know, don't, don't, don't need to demo. So you, can, um, you see the hands coming together and you see the spike on the audio and you, you lock those two together. That's an easier way to do it as well. But anyway, he, he'll, he'll sync them very quickly at the beginning and then he'll have a timeline with the two video tracks and two audio tracks all synced, and he will edit the video together um, and cut between the two video tracks as he goes along when whoever's speaking. Uh, and, yeah, he'll do a little bit of processing on the sound there to make sure it's you know hard limiter so it's, you're not busting any limits and, yeah. um, and maybe a little bit of filtering.
0: And then that, that audio just gets... He exports the video with the audio as one file, and then he exports an audio-only version, I assume, to get uploaded into your distribution platform.
1: Yeah, exactly right. Um, and I don't know whether he, because within Premiere Pro, you can export to Audition, which is, is it called Audition, which is their audio, uh, software, it is, which is yeah. a, quite a complex suite of audio stuff. And He may export the audio there and then do a little bit more to it before he exports it again. I don't know, but probably not actually probably he may well use it for the video as well. And then just export it as one, one file. So he, he'll come out with an MP4 and, uh, an MP3. Uh, basically
0: it's quite a process to put your podcast together How far in advance are you recording your interviews? So the interviews
1: I mean this time last year we had quite a backlog probably six to eight weeks so I was if I was recording today it'd be a month and a half to two months before the it came off the shelf I think that was a bit too long because we sometimes do talk about contemporary things particularly when the pandemic hit. But now, just because I don't know exactly why, it's slightly concerning to me. We've we've gone to almost having one interview ready to go, and I record it, and it goes the next week, which is we're we've probably got three interviews now, so we're three weeks ahead at the moment, probably about right. But um, it's a it's a balance between being contemporaneous, which I think is a good thing for a podcast to be able to talk about contemporary things and not panicking that you're running out of material (laughs) so somewhere between those two so at the moment we are from fact i can check i can look in our cut interviews folder and i think there's three interviews in there that gives us three weeks to go how are you
0: finding guests are they coming to you at this point or are you still reaching out to them
1: no we're reaching out guests do come to us um uh but often they're not not in our wheelhouse really uh a bit of a cliche isn't it wheelhouse stay in your lane wheelhouse i speak the lingo (laughs) don't i Um, Full of metaphors. Yeah, exactly. So people come to us and they, you know, they're like entrepreneurs doing, hawking their book on how to be how to be a go getter, uh, yeah. and it's not really publishing or self-publishing. And so, you know, we do say no to quite a few people who who come up unsolicited to us. So we go out after them. So Tom does that; it's his primary job. But I will also send him ideas. Uh, like yesterday, I saw we had, or a couple of days ago, I noticed Lucy Score, who's wonderful and been on our podcast several times, as a friend of mine now. She was number one in the store, which is amazing. But numbers two and three were uh, romance writers who are in our SPF community, who I don't know. I don't know them, know them at all, but I, I'd searched on the group and they are both members. And so we had numbers one, two, and three uh, in the dot com Amazon store, which is amazing. So, uh, it reminds me, I thought this this morning as I was getting up to say to Tom, try and track those two down, we'll get them on. But Tom will, he'll look at who Joanna Penn is having, he'll look at who, there's a couple of other, JD Barker does a good podcast now. Um, So, he'll look at appearing on the other podcasts. And,. I just keep my ears to the ground you know when I chat to people like Lucy Lucy says oh you should really speak to this person they're doing really well or someone says my agent is the most brilliant person at at, at explaining how stories work and so I'll say fine we'll get them on and we'll talk about storytelling so and I like those ones because they're often we're the first person to have that person on first podcast to have that person on uh, rather than somebody as you say it's kind of kind of doing the rounds a bit on the
0: podcast so
1: yeah but it's it's Tom's job to reach out to them and, and fill the cupboard if you like with uh, with interviews
0: so if he's if he's reaching out to them I assume he's scheduling them how how far in advance do you know who the guest is
1: uh, oh quite a long way so I I block out Monday and Tuesday to do interviews and I make myself available for only one interview a day because I've got lots of other stuff on so from sort of 11 o'clock in the morning UK till I think 8 o'clock at night UK which just about gives a, a bit of option for the people in, in California on, the, on sure. the west coast they can do something mid-morning um, so those two days but as soon as the slot's taken it's taken so the maximum interviews I'm going to do is two a week uh, and if you went onto that calendar now I think you are probably booking into February um, but I can see them in the calendar, and of course, okay. the great thing about that is I can click on the link and also see everything they've written about themselves. So, um, although I'll be honest, Chris, I usually do that ten minutes before the interview.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you don't you don't do a ton of research or maybe any research on your guests then before they come on. You you just go on and and you have a list of questions that you're working off of. No. I don't, and I think I I rely
1: on the fact that I've done even before I started podcasting. I had done thousands of interviews, and as a news reporter, you never, you rarely get a chance to do research on it. You are sent out, you know, you'll get a brief from an an editor uh, who normally is telling you what an amazing story this is and how they see it working in the evening. And then you meet the guest and realize it's completely different, and that the story is not quite what they wanted, and all the rest of it. But but because of that background of not having to research um i i just don't and it's a time i find it a time slap i like i like the conversation to flow i like the interview to be a process of discovery for me because that's how it's going to be for the listener right they don't know anything about that person and if i know too you can know too much about your interviewee um and you you ask sort of um you skip some of the detail because say, oh yes because you had that big success last year so so what do you think about your next book and actually the interviewer saying i had a huge success last august and the interviewee saying oh really what was that that's a much more interesting thing to listen to yeah than um than somebody who knows too much so i think it you know it's it suits the fact that i'm busy and don't and i'm hesitating to use the word lazy because i do work very hard but it's partly i suppose that as well i just don't want to spend all that time researching um but also it you know, it presents a more interesting discovery interview by the outset, I think.
0: Definitely something for me to keep in mind. Although I think at this point I would be terrified to just hop on a call with somebody and not have at least something in front of me to work off of. But I have not done thousands of interviews, so I think still can, learning. I think you can do it. Do you have like one uh, one main interviewing tip that you would give to somebody who's who's trying to figure out how to do that?
1: so the two things so i thought i mentioned one earlier is um is listen to the answers uh, it's a really obvious thing to say it sounds like an obvious thing to say but a lot of people don't do it so listen to the answers you'll find the interviews a lot easier to do that way because it'll flow don't worry too much about your next question base it on what they've said and then use your list of questions as kind of prompts at some point when you think you want to move on to a new topic area you probably only need three or four prompts in front of you and uh, the rest of the interview the rest of the question are based on what they're saying and then it becomes more of a flowing conversation and the second thing is not to not to walk all over your interviewee so there's a golf interview a uh, golf guy i like called rick shields and he, oh yeah yeah so rick- i watch rick actually okay so you watch rick so he did an interview recently with tommy fleetwood and i really like tommy fleetwood a pro golfer very down to earth very nice guy brilliant golfer and much as I love Rick, and I will continue to watch his YouTube channel, he talked all over him in that interview. He kept barking at him, telling. In the end, Tommy Fleetwood's sitting there listening to Rick Shields telling him stories about what happened to him <laughs> that weren't that great. And I'm thinking, I'm not watching this interview for you. You're the presenter, so yeah. so get out the way of your interviewee and let them talk, and then you know prompt them and have your conversation. But um, but get out the way of the interviewee is the other thing I would say. My, my two tips.
0: Do you also watch Peter Finch? I don't. Is he a golfer as well? Is he? He is. Yeah. And he's actually done some videos with Rick. I think they're in the same area. So they do some, uh, like course videos together.
1: Well, maybe I have seen them then. Yes. Didn't know his name, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Rick works best, doesn't he? When he's, he's on the course.
0: Yeah. By uh, himself.
1: Yeah. By himself and testing equipment and stuff. And I love all that stuff. And it's, and he could be a better interviewer, but he, he almost needs somebody to say, okay, here's some couple of interview techniques.
0: But, yeah, listen to the answers and get out the way of your interviewee. Where do you see podcasts going in the future? Are we still on the leading edge or is this a mature market? Well, I suppose we have to start thinking about
1: the metaverse, don't we? I mean, this is. Oh, sad. God. Yeah. So uh, you better get your VR headset. I won't be
0: part of that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it does feel like something too much, doesn't it? There's one more thing I can't do this one. I'm going to opt out. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I always get excited by technology. So I'm kind of excited about all that those possibilities. I mean, there's. I saw a stat the other day, someone posted something about how many podcasts there are in the world, but not to be too despondent because like 95% of them are not active. 95% of podcasts don't get past episode three, don't post regularly or haven't posted regularly in the last year. So there's actually only a few thousand that are routinely uh, updated and posted. So I think there's still scope for people who want to enter this uh, and make a splash and, and but you've got to have longevity. You've got to stick with it. Um, I don't know in, in the long term for podcasting. I mean, I suppose more people might add video like we're doing, that might become, you'd think, wouldn't you, that video would become a, you know, as devices get more powerful uh, and can stream more easily, that that might start to become a requirement. Although it's funny how stuff gets becomes legacy quite yeah. quickly and stuck in its way. So I can't see Apple iTunes you know adding a video component to their podcasting tool quickly because that would involve re-engineering a lot of stuff that's been there for 15 20 years but
0: sure is there anything else that we should talk about did we miss anything that you wanted to cover
1: um i don't mm, think so so i think i've i've told you about the extent of my technical knowledge which is not as good as it was when i was setting all this stuff up at the time um, my main thing really i think the only thing i can bring that's that's you know just from experience is the interviewing which i talked about that that is it means a lot to me because i do you know when you do listen to other podcasts you do listen to those interviewers that are really good that have a flowing conversation and allow their interviewee to breathe uh, and find their find their way and i think if you can and it's only experience you can't start off like that it's like anything when you first start doing it you're going to be a bit ragged a bit nervous um so maybe you do you know you can back off a bit but the more interviews you do, just get them done one after the other. You do start to um, uh, to get experience in that, and I think that's that makes such a difference to your podcast. I guess the main thing that I, I think I can say about podcasting.
0: James, thank you so much for coming on. Who makes a podcast? Where can people find you? Where do you want to send them?
1: Uh, well, I guess selfpublishingformula.com is the is the stop-off point. If you're interested in self-publishing your books, we offer a lot of resources. Obviously, we have those paid courses, which are sort of premium courses. There's a, a foundation one called 101 and a more advanced one called Ads for Authors. But uh, actually, there's a ton of free resources uh, to get you going on that, and our podcast is Available on that website as well, self publishing Should you be interested in my book, uh, JamesBlatch.com is the place to find that. Uh, well, to find my sort of author website and, and The Final Flight by James Blatch on Amazon if you uh, want to search on that.
0: Great. Thank you so much for coming on uh, my podcast with me. I really appreciate it. It's been very informative. This has been great.
1: Thank you, Chris. I've in- really enjoyed it.
0: That was my conversation with James Blatch author and co-host of the Self-Publishing Show podcast, which can be found everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also find James at jamesblatch.com and selfpublishingformula.com. My name is Chris Cookley, and you can find me at whomakesapodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be an enormous help if you shared it with your friends or left a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It helps other podcast lovers find the show, and it really does make a difference. And if you host a podcast and would like to be my next guest on Who Makes a Podcast, let me know. Go to whomakesapodcast.com slash guest and tell me about your show. This is Who Makes a Podcast. I'll be back next time with another conversation with another incredible podcast host. Thanks for listening.